Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Branding is really such a fundamental and important skill for everyone in industry to learn because that's how you create value. You may need to reframe how we think about saying no. So the way to begin is to really start saying no to the things that don't matter so that we can say yes to the things that do. The simple reframing of language from I can't to I don't makes a world of difference in terms of how your no comes across. Welcome to episode 64 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Vanessa Patrick. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the supporters of the podcast. I'm currently working on launching a new website. Hopefully it will be live by the time this episode is released. Please do check it out. It's called harshaboralesa.com. Please note that in this episode, we may touch on mental health and wellness topics, purely in general terms. If you have specific issues or concerns, please contact a suitable professional. Now back to the show. Vanessa is the Associate Dean for Research, Executive Director of Doctoral Programs, PhD and DBA, a Bauer Professor of Marketing and Lead Faculty of the Executive Women in Leadership Program at the Bauer School of Business at the University of Houston. She has been recognized with a number of awards for both scholarship and teaching, and is a regular speaker at both academic and practitioner conferences, including the Association of Consumer Research Conference and the Society of Consumer Psychology Conference. She serves on editorial and policy boards of leading academic journals. She is currently an associate editor for the Journal of Marketing Research and the Journal of Marketing. Her new book is The Power of Saying No, and it's lucky I did not say no to Vanessa. And it is also a great read. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much. I've really been looking forward to chatting with you, Harsha. Oh, brilliant. So, Vanessa, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share? And I believe you're a bit of a bookworm, Vanessa. So I I hope to see some interesting uh, fiction titles rather than personal development. (laughs) Sure. I actually love to read. You're absolutely right. But there's also an aspect of my research that I focus on in which I study aesthetics and design. So uh, I definitely also have favorite artworks and uh, music pieces, etc. So I can tell you a couple of things. My favorite current book that I have loved this last year has been Lessons in Chemistry. It is a lovely nonfiction read. I just finished as of yesterday uh, a book that it was it was interesting because yesterday was Eleanor Roosevelt's birthday oh, wow. and I finished a book about her yesterday and it was called First Ladies. So I like to read kind of historical fiction as well but also just fiction fiction. 
And in terms of art, you know, there's just so many beautiful artworks and I do research inspired by the arts. So, for example, there's this one painting uh, by Degas. It's called uh, it's called Melancholy. And it's uh, it's a painting that I've been fascinated by. And it actually inspired a research article that looked at how artworks draw consumers in, draw the viewer in. And very often, art uses this technique of using averted gaze. So in portraits and in pictures where you want the viewer to look objectively at the art, you know, you the, the gaze is always direct. But when you want the viewer to be immersed in the art, it's always averted. So one of these paintings is Melancholy, which is such a beautiful painting and she's looking sadly to the side and it's one of those paintings that really draws you in so I wrote a paper about averted gaze and the ability to immerse a person but the story behind melancholy is interesting because it was in the Chicago Museum of Art and so I was determined when I that when I reached, went to Chicago for a conference that I was going to take time out to find this painting and I went all over looking for it after a while I decided okay I must speak to the docent to find out where is this painting I know it's here and it turns out it's this tiny postcard sized painting which I did not expect I imagined like, you know, we've got these views of the world that, you know, if it's going to be a painting, it's going to be this big size painting. It's the same response people have to the Mona Lisa, for example. They find, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was so small. But Melancholy is literally a postcard size painting, but it is beautiful. No, no, I, I love that. I have to admit, I'm not a, a big art person purely because I'm not very good at art. But um, I love, say, the Impressionists and Monet. Mm -hmm. So I haven't come across that Degas, but I will definitely check it out. But but it's interesting since sort of starting uh, the podcast and the YouTube channel, you're thinking about how do things look? How do things appeal oh, to, yeah. to people? And they're these very subtle things. You're thinking about colors. And I never thought that you could be thinking about purples or blues and, and ruminating, which right. is more appealing. And But back to the beginning, what led to your interest in marketing and working in advertising? I was on a science track and I was destined to become a doctor because that was what my I came from a family <laughs> of doctors and everyone expected that that was what I was going to do. And uh, much to everyone's disappointment, I decided that I was going to not get into the medical field, but stay in science and do microbiology and biochemistry and specialize in genetic engineering and become a research scientist. I further disappointed my family when I decided to abandon that entirely and actually do my MBA. It's through that process of recognizing in myself that you, you might be good at certain things, but you may not necessarily enjoy it. And so I think that that, that was fortunately an early recognition that I might be good at science, I might be capable of doing it, but sitting behind a microscope and working alone in the lab was just not so interesting to me. I much rather have much rather ha be in the quad, hanging out with people, or you know, going out and doing stuff to, that uh, made me understand life a little bit more. And so I think that the switch was more because I was interested in people and how things work and how the world works. And then, of course, science does that too, but in a very different way. 
I can totally understand that, Vanessa, because my mum's an anaesthetist and my father's a hematologist. So, they, but but they were they were pretty cool about me not going down the medical path because yes. they probably realised, look, it wasn't for me. What led to working in advertising? So a couple of things. One was definitely because I did my MBA. That was a natural path into some in business industry. But also that my dad was was in advertising. And so he was in creative. He was an uh, he was an yeah. art director. So I grew up learning a lot about art and art mm. advertising. And sh- I attended many photo shoots that he was doing as part of his job. So it felt like familiar industry and also exciting. Obviously, you worked for a few years. And in your book, you talk about your 24th birthday, which we can talk about later. Um, j- just yeah. a spoiler alert, it didn't end well. Uh, but <laughs> but what, what brought about that shift into academia? It was it was a fabulous first job. It gave me a lot of things that I still use up until today. It was definitely one of those things that puts you on the spot and forces you to find uh, solutions to problems. There's no such thing as saying we can't do it when you're in advertising. You make it happen. And I think that that go-getting sort of uh, mentality is something that holds me really well up until today the idea that you know everything can get done if you wanted to get done it was fast-paced it was exciting but it was very much focused on doing much less at least at the stage that I was at much less on learning on thinking on personal development so when I thought about kind of where I wanted to go in my career I wanted a much more intellectually stimulating job on which I could grow. You know, I just felt that there was something out there that could be more aligned with my personality. Because I wasn't going to be 24 for the rest of my life where I didn't have any commitments. I could just stay up till two o'clock in the morning waiting for an artwork to be. Facts. Yes. Or or, or an artwork to come from the printer so that I could transfer it somewhere else. There was not a feasible long-term career for me, given who I am. I explored several options, but, you know, academia uh, was this unknown because I didn't know a single person who had done a PhD. So for me, saying, wow, I want to do a PhD was uh, quite, quite bold, I feel, looking back and thinking about it because... You know, I just left home and I said, I just want to study more. And it just turned out to be the best decision I ever made. I think I started flourishing when I joined my PhD program. Yeah, and and you ended up at the uh, USC, the home of the, is it the Trojans? The Trojans. So Yeah, good football team. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So were you there during the glory days of Pete Carroll? Was he there like 2005, 2004? I can't. I was I was there from 1999 to 2004. Okay, so you would have seen some great football teams, which you would have missed probably. I probably <laughs> did not go for as many games uh, as I should have. I mean, as a doctoral student, you're not necessarily as embedded in, course, yeah. in the university <laughs> uh, football culture like if you were an undergrad. And I was so focused on work and so focused on studying. I think if I look back, I feel that I should have had a better balance. But at that time, when you're a doctoral student, you know, you just put your head down and work. 
Well, you, you miss hanging out with Snoop Dogg, but uh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure that will happen in the future. Vanessa. Oh, I do hope so. <laughs> I believe it's so important that you can do great work, but if you can't um, find a way of standing out uh, and also communicating what you're doing to other people, you're just not going to get ahead. Um, and it's almost like um, if you say, look at uh, Netflix, you have the content production piece and then the marketing piece. And, you know, you can great, create great product, but if you can't market it and vice versa, so it's, you know, it goes hand in hand. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially our listeners, they're probably good at the technical side, but not maybe so good at the personal branding. And, and, and clearly, look, this is, probably a couple of books worth, but maybe some high level things which our listeners um, could use in their working lives? This is definitely something that's a passion for me. Now, marketing is about creating value. And so the bottom line is that when you are thinking about yourself as a brand, you have to be thinking about how do I create value in whatever I touch? And that means that you not only have to do good work, you know, the production part that you were talking yeah. about. But people yeah. need to know that you can do good work. They need to know that when the good work is done, that it was done by you. And so that's the that's the part where the brand comes out, right? And so when you think about a brand and you ask yourself fundamentally, what is a brand? A brand is a set of associations. So if you think of any brand, what comes to mind when you think about that brand? Right? And that, those, those associations can be driven by the marketer and actually can also be your experiences and your interactions with those brands. It also implies how the brand makes you feel. And so when you think about yourself as a brand, you can think about your brand as a function of what people talk about you, your reputation, and what you do. What associations do they have with you? So, you know, personal branding at some level is a very fundamental aspect of the book that I wrote. Because when you are a brand, what you want to do is you want to know what you uniquely bring to the table, how you can stand out, how you can be the go-to person for the things that you do best. And once you are able to master that, to figure out what do I do best, how do I communicate what value I bring to the table, and how do I then be that person who people reach out to when they need that done, requires you to know a few things. You need to be, have that self-awareness. You need to also be able to have the confidence to be able to communicate that value to others. What can you do well? What do you bring to the table? And a very important thing is to not dilute your brand by doing things that are not aligned with your brand. If you say you are a brand that does X well, but you spend your entire day doing Y, people are not going to know you for X. They will know you about Y. And then you wonder, why are people asking me to do things that I really don't enjoy doing? Because you haven't said no to the things you don't enjoy doing. So you keep, they, people keep coming back to you for it. And so personal branding is really such a fundamental and important skill for everyone in industry to learn because that's how you create value. So Vanessa, I suppose it's really how you can create the most value because I really believe, especially in the modern world, it's about trying to stand out and, and really build on the things that you're good at, really major on that, and then figure out a ways how do you communicate 
that in a, a way that is actually pleasant and not braggadocious. Um, and maybe things like creating content, you know, getting into podcasts, writing articles. Because the funny thing is that when, uh, and, and just for our listeners, the way Vanessa and I connected is that I commented on a post on LinkedIn. I think it was Matt Abrahams. Um, I think you had been on his podcast. I reached out to Vanessa and she said, oh, would you like to have me on your podcast? Now, clearly I have an obligation to my listeners. Generally, when I get cold invitations, uh, I'm sort of quite Quite on the fence but luckily i did actually look into vanessa and and because the majority of my uh listeners are female i try and get more um you know, female speakers so that was another positive thing and then i also looked at your book which was fantastic so it, it's funny how if you can get stuff out there uh in terms of content um and i listened also to your um interview with the behavioral grooves uh people because i know uh, mm-hmm. Kurt nelson so it is funny how even though we haven't met each other your brand is you know you've got the book you're a professor um you've got the podcasts out there so you you have these various almost um avenues to building the brand even though we haven't met at all absolutely yeah absolutely and that is really and and it's and, and let me say that it's not easy to do that but you have to build the brand by being consistent so you have to be consistently thinking about what do i need to put out there into the world that is continuously developing that persona that you want to create you also need to be communicating material that is relevant you need to be doing and you need to do things that people want to hear if it's all about oh this is so great and i'm so great nobody wants to hear that everyone wants to hear what's in it for me so one of the big things that i do on linkedin specifically is i run curated groups because as a professor no i am always reading the stuff that's cutting edge i'm always thinking stuff that's cutting edge and i feel that that's what my students want not only when they are in my class but even after that so they want to be in touch and they want to know what i'm thinking but what's the way to do that so what i've done is essentially i've created um curated groups on linkedin so that when the student has me in their class they have me forever so they i've got groups on different topics that i teach so that people can stay in touch with this material Yeah, can you tell our listeners which uh, can, can anybody join? Yeah, I think yeah, I'm, yeah, I think actually, I'm in one of your groups. Yeah, yeah. I, anyone can join because this is kind of a curated group, curated groups on different topics. I've got a topic on women in leadership because I teach. I'm uh, the lead faculty for our women in leadership program here. I also do research on a topic called inclusive design. So I uh, that's all about developing new products and services that. meet the needs of a more diverse population yeah. and so it requires you to think about product design in a very different sort of way and so i've got a curated group on on inclusive design and one which is for my general lifelong learner group which is called the uh, for the love of lifelong learning and that's the stuff where i just throw in just interesting stuff that kind of makes me go wow i wish i I wish everyone could know this. And and um, I, and I I like that because I think um the, the knowledge is all out there. I think it's about how you assemble and you put these mm-hmm. things together and I think that's yes. where the real value is that it's yes. having these unique takes on the on on what's out there and presenting in a different way. Because there's just so much material out there. I think the future is about curations. It's about having people who you trust. to be good sources 
to be good guides and allowing them to curate material for you. You know, if I'm an expert at a particular topic, then I feel that I've got a particular lens with which I'm viewing that topic and the future and how that's growing. And so when I share that with people, I bring people along with me. And that's where the curation, the value of curation is. Okay. And and for people who are learning, then should they be looking to find trusted experts and following them and then applying their own lens? In fact, I would love very much love it if there was more of a dialogue at the current at the at the moment people are consuming right, content right. but not yes. necessarily engaging in that content i might have a few reshares but it's not like a dialogue which is what in an ideal world that's what you want to do that's how the where the learning actually happens that's how classroom learning happens classroom learning happens when you provide information yeah. And then you build on that information through some sort of a dialogue. Oh, brilliant. So, Vanessa, I'll, I'll be emailing you every few weeks from now on. <laughs> but turning to your book, um, why is saying no so hard? Gosh, uh, Harsh, it's crazy how hard people find saying no. And, I mean, if you think about it, it is a hard thing to do. We are social beings and... Uh, we have been kind of socialized to be cooperative and nice and kind. And in many ways, saying no seems to be going against that social expectation. So there, there are these norms by which you operate in society. And saying no seems like a norm violation, going against what people expect. But that shouldn't be the case. What my book makes the case about, you need to reframe how we think about saying no. No is not a bad thing if the thing you are saying no to is bad for you, right? And so we need to rethink this issue. Now, coming back to the, the fundamental question about why we struggle with saying no and why we often say yes when we want to say no. And this is a common trap. And a lot of people struggle with this. And I've asked many people to kind of tell me the stories, and I have bundled them into three main reasons for why people say yes when they want to say no. And that is the concern for reputation. We are so concerned about what people think about us. We want to be seen as competent, capable, people who can who can handle anything that comes their way. And saying no seems to suggest that we are vulnerable and weak and unable to do stuff. And we resist that kind of association. And so we want to maintain that capable, competent identity. And so we think that saying no is going to damage our reputation and we want to stay clear from that. Another reason, a big reason why a lot of people say yes, when they want to say no is because they are people pleasers or they are people who say, well, you know, my the relationship I have with the other person is more important than the relationship I have with myself. Yeah. I, I value other people more than I value me. And so the concern for relationships is a strong driver. And people believe, and I would say that they are mostly wrong, that if you say no, you are going to damage your relationship with the other person. And I argue in the book is that there are ways to say no in which you can say no and still maintain the relationship with the other person, given that you 
say no in a way that is uh, authentic yeah. and clear and stems from your identity, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. And the third reason people say yes when they want to say no is that they never really learn to say no. They don't have any practice. And we know that if we don't practice, we are never going to get good at stuff. So the way to begin is to really start saying no to the things that don't matter so that we can say yes to the things that do. I love that. And I, two things have struck me. Well, firstly, this idea of not valuing yourself, because I think that is so important that once you actually do value your, your time and the things that you're doing, then you can say to yourself, well, look, why am I doing this task, which really is not adding any value? It's about almost like self-love. But I think if people do um, appreciate themselves, if they value themselves, you are just not going to end up doing um, sort of silly things and also this whole idea of you know if, if you say no uh, it's it's difficult to say no to people but you know if you put that in your head that almost like the default is no but or maybe because i i was definitely very much a people please and i was saying yes to all these things but now i've learned that you know you just can't do it and actually saying yes to something is going to take time away from other things so yeah i just love all the things that you're talking about Absolutely. So I think there's you, you said a few of those things that are in the book as well, which is that everything is a trade off. When we say yes to one thing, we are going to say no to something else. Uh, recognizing that we have limited time, energy and resources, and we want to dedicate those limited resources to the things that matter, because that is how we build our personal brand. That is how we create a unique mark on the world. That is how we create value. If we squander our time doing what everybody else wants, we don't spend time doing what we can do. We have so little opportunity, such a small window in our life to really make a positive difference. If you look at a lot of the very famous people who have made a positive difference, they have had a laser sharp focus. They know what they want to do, and they put all their energies in making those things happen. So you think about the trade-offs that you have to make when you scatter your energy, you scatter your focus. You're not going to be able to make the impact that you could. And I think that what happens then, when you actually start developing this kind of very clear focus on where you want to concentrate, you start seeing the returns. You start seeing that you have more time, more energy, more motivation to do the things that matter. Can you really say no to your boss? And how do you frame that? Absolutely. This is this. The, so the crux of this book is the concept of empowered refusal, which is what I've studied in my research. So empowered refusal is a way of saying no that communicates the no in a way that implicates the identity. So then your no becomes about you and who you are, what you value, what you bring to the table, and not a rejection of the other person. And it's a simple reframe of communicating a no, not leaning on an excuse or some sort of external circumstance, which a lot of us do. Because when someone comes and asks us something, we often think about what, what is it that I can lean on? 
what excuse can I grab? And we've been taught to be polite and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this because, you know, things are out of my control. Yeah. And that takes away the responsibility from you to some someone else. In my book, I argue for a kind of reversal of that, to own your no, take ownership of where you stand on a particular matter. And so when you own that no and implicate it, in your identity, communicate it from who you are. And that begins with the language that we use. So instead of saying, I can't because of some external circumstance, I recommend reframing that to saying, I don't because this is who I am. And so the simple reframing of language from I can't to I don't makes a world of difference in terms of how your no comes across. When you say I can't, you come across as not in control, deprived, you know, more vulnerable, and you mo- in, and invite pushback. Because if you say I can't, people most often will ask you why, and then you enter an, into a long-winded neg- negotiation as to why you can't do something. But when you say I don't do something, it communicates that you are in the driver's seat of your own life that you are in control, you know where you stand on a matter, and this is your stance. Your boss comes up to you and says, Vanessa, um, I've got this big project to do, and you've already got a couple of other projects to do. I mean, if I was in that situation, I would simply say, clearly, um, we need to figure out a way of either me parceling this to somebody else or changing what I'm doing. I mean, what, what are your thoughts of Vanessa in that? Because I think that's a scenario that comes up for a lot of people that they're already busy and then their boss shoves some other stuff. But actually, in that situation, you can use it, reframe it and, and use it in a positive way. Absolutely. So these are these are all great suggestions that you that you mentioned. But at the end of the day, When a request comes your way, the first thing to assess is whether this is your job or not. Yeah. Right? Because very often we are asked to do things that are not our job. And those are the non-promotable tasks, the office housework. Now, those are things you can say no to because they don't fall within your job. But let's say that this, this is an additional project that falls within the scope of work. That's the time to have that discussion. Instead of saying yes or no in the moment, we need to first take the time to think because that reflecting on whether this is a good project for you to take on, what would you have to give up to do this and how you can present your case to your boss. So when somebody comes to you and says, your boss comes to you and says, you know, I've got this big project. I want to, can I, can, can you take it on? It's due, say, in three weeks. Instead of saying yes or no in the moment, it's a good idea to buy some time to reflect. So you said, let me, let me, let me think about what I have on my plate for the next three weeks and get back to you. And then make sure to actually do that assessment. What do I have to do in the next three weeks? What are the things I would have to give up in order to get this done? And then go to the boss and present your case. If this is super important, then I will take it on. But these are the things that may not be able to get done because I'm taking this on. And that is a reasonable negotiation to have. And that's how you kind of try to handle it. So the, the key points are one, never say yes or no in the moment because you haven't had the time to actually make the necessary calculations. Two is do the work. Think carefully about what's the time it's going to take and what are the trade-offs. Learn to present a case without defensiveness, 
without fear, because we at the end of the day are expected to perform at, at a level of excellence that is in, in line with our personal brand. Very often I don't take things on, not because I can't do it, but because I will not be able to do it at the level at which I feel it needs to get done. You know, sometimes you have to think about it and say, can I get it done at the level I need to get it done? If not, then I'm not going to do it. So that's just one of my personal policies. Now, sh shift the scenario to asks that come from your boss or from anyone in the organization that have nothing to do with your job. Now, these are a lot of people get asked to do things that have nothing to do with what they've been hired to do. And this includes things like, you know, organizing retirement parties, organizing seminar, uh, managing, you know, interns. And it's stuff that needs to be done in the organization, but nobody has the responsibility yeah. to do it. And that's what we call in the in the research office housework. Yeah. So it's like someone needs to do it, but no one's assigned to do it. And in those cases, the research shows a gender difference in this, that women are more likely to be asked to do office housework and also more likely to say yes to doing the office housework. And when we are in the situation where we are asked to do office housework, I think, number one, we can say no because it's not part of our job. We need to recognize the real trade-offs because when we are doing office housework, we are not doing our job. And it is our job that is going to be discussed in annual performance reviews. Whether you organize retirement party or baked a cake or organized a picnic never comes up. It just doesn't come up unless the organization is going to actually reward you for those tasks you are entitled to say no to those tasks or say yes if it is your turn. Many organizations do kind of a round robin sort yeah. of thing where these, you know, I, I handle the interns this year. Now you yeah. handle the intern. Someone else handles the interns next year. And if it's that sort of rotating task, that seems fair. But if it's your turn to do it, then you take it on. Otherwise, you know, it's not necessary. The research shows that we often get trapped doing stuff that is never going to show up in an annual performance review, and we're not going to get promoted for those tasks. Look, so I think the bottom line there is really look at what you're being asked to do. If it's this non-promotable stuff, you really have to you know, be quite firm, almost selfish, and say, look, okay, I'll do it once, but I'm not going to be the person, the go-to person for the Christmas party or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, and no, I think I think that's a that's a great point. So, I, I also picked up in your book that you you have this sort of framework, and you talk about these uh, ART, and you talk about these three competencies to help you say no. Absolutely. So, uh, now in order to be able to communicate an effective, empowered refusal, you need to develop some skills and competencies. Competencies. This idea of looking inwards and being able to articulate and know an effective way based on your identity requires us to do some background work. And so I call this the art of empowered refusal, where ART stands for awareness, rules, not decisions, and totality of self. Where we need to begin with a lot of this is self-awareness, developing the insight and the awareness about ourselves. Where, where, what do we value? What do we want to bring to the table? 
how do we want to show up in the world? What do we want our personal brand to look like? What do we want people to think when they think about us? So these are the things that need to shape how our decisions move forward. With that deepened self-awareness, we then need to develop systems. We need to put systems in place. And I call these systems personal policies. Personal policies are simple rules that we put in place that just guide our actions and decisions. They can act as shortcuts, for example. So if you ask me something and I have a personal policy in mind, making the decision about whether to say yes or no to you becomes much easier because I know where I stand on that matter. And it could be a broad, it could be at a different level. It could be a category level. You know, these sorts of asks, this is where I stand. Or it could be very specific. When I am asked this, I will say no. Or I will say yes. So I think we can develop a set of systems and become much more fluent with the kind of requests that come our way. I very often, when I talk to groups, I have people raise their hands to uh, on various questions. And one question I like to ask is, how many people, and they're mostly leaders in the room, how many people just wish people would just stop asking them stuff? And hands raise up. Everyone just don't like, please don't ask me stuff. And this is wishful thinking. The reality is that people are always going to ask. It is up to us to be able to say no to the things that are not things that are aligned with our purpose and yes to the things that are. And so people are just not going to stop asking us stuff. So it's is we better get good at sifting between the good for me activities and the not good for me activities because though that's the only way to move forward in a realistic manner. And I like this point you made about having this rules-based system because then it's not a personal thing. It's just I don't do that. So yeah. say, I mean, if you're not working, in the, a lot of people who are sort of office-based, they like to go out at lunchtime and meet clients because it's a good way to get out of the office. But if you're not working in the office, then to go into town, meet that person, travel back, you're wasting three hours or four hours or whatever it is. So in a way, if you say to yourself, look, I I can meet you at the end of the day or the start of the day, but I'm not going to meet you in the middle of the day because it's going to mess up my day. And then people are very, they know where you stand. And this is not about, uh, it's that person. It is just, this is my policy. So I I just love love that point that you're making. And and also this personal policy thing. Yeah, it is then just saying, okay, um, it's almost like saying, um, I'm Vanessa Patrick, LLC. Um, I, I'm trying to create value. How can I create value in the most efficient way? I have 50 hours of billable time or what, whatever it is to create as much value as possible. I don't want to waste my time doing things which are not going to be driving the business uh, forward and to help my IPO in five years' time. That is exactly it. It is about developing rules. And once you set rules, people, you it's so much easier for people to say, well, that's that's her rule. That's the way it's gonna be, because that's the rule. And we are rule followers, right? And so it's easy to kind of lay out a rule and say, This is my policy, this is my rule, this is how I operate. And 
you get much more compliance from other people and you get much more agreement you also come across as much more decisive so for example i think when you when we decided that we were going to do the podcast together yeah. i told you that i do podcasts on thursdays yes. thursdays is my podcast day now i developed that rule after launching my book and realizing that when i did podcasts every day yeah. any time yeah. it became too chaotic yeah. and i i it was i couldn't manage my week it's yeah. much easier to know that this is the day that i do podcasts and most people can always find a thursday yeah. to talk to me if i tell them thursdays is my day to do a podcasts and so simple it simply narrows kind of the uh, uh, your availability but also makes the decision making easier that that many thursdays in the next month we can all we can say well these are the thursdays that we are available and you can make rules for all sorts of things i mean i think uh, one that the listeners will probably relate to is we we make rules for ourselves when it comes to travel yeah uh, very often right we all have our preferences we all we are either aisle seat people or window people we are either red eye people red eye flight yeah. people or daytime flyers we have rules about like where we like to holiday how long we like to fly for those kind of things and we kind of develop our holiday plans or our travel plans around those rules because we know our preferences so if they can work in travel it can work in pretty much any domain right can think about how do i like my days to be how do i like my work mornings to be so for example i rarely have any meetings in the morning because my mornings are reserved for creative time and writing time i i don't go out for lunch very often i the very very rare exceptions because my daytime yeah. when i'm actually working is important i'll meet people at 5 for a walk yeah uh i will but i will not do a mid of middle of the day thing because it disrupts my work pattern and on a week i mean and i might make exceptions depending on a week or somebody coming yeah, to town so. of course they, and that's the beauty about personal policies they are yours you are totally allowed to make exceptions uh but not every day all the time Yeah. yeah no 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 I I just love that Vanessa and I think that point about decision making I think that's really important because there are, there are a finite number of decisions one can make because it is actually mentally very taxing so if you have rules in place it just stops you from having to make trivial decisions I remember that thing with Obama he always wore black suits purely yes. so he wouldn't have to think and same with Steve Jobs yes. um or what what you have for lunch and if you can take the trivial decisions out then that really doesn't you know empower you but but so sort of going back to your book what i really liked is this matrix that you have for mm-hmm. working out what to say no in terms of the cost to you and the benefit to others yeah so it's i call it the decide for your ask matrix because many people ask me so how do i even decide how to dis- how to say what to say yes to and yep. what to say no to and this is a very big part of self awareness yep. right and another fundamental aspect of the book is saying no is not a selfish act it is an act where you are constantly negotiating and balancing what you bring to the table and how you create value for others the way the matrix is divided is it's it's got one axis which is the cost that it is that saying yes will be to you a uh, cost in terms of anything cost in terms of time cost in terms of energy emotions stress anxiety 
conflict, everything. That's all part of the cost. How painful is it going to be for you to do? And balancing that against the benefit you, it can confer on the other person. So then you've got this two by two matrix where you've got high, high, low, low, high, low, low, high. Yeah. Right, And so the first category of asks is essentially uh, something that I call pass the salt asks. Pass the salt asks are asks there where the cost to you is very low, but the benefit to somebody else or the person asking is very high. And so it's like if you're sitting at the dining table and the salt shaker is sitting in front of you and someone says, hey, can you please pass the salt? You just lift it up and pass it along. Not hard for you but you've presumably made a big difference to the other person's meal. And those are the kind of asks which come easy to us. They leverage our strengths. They're good. They're easy for us to do. So doing them is helpful to other people who need those things done. Uh, as a professor, I spend a lot of time writing recommendation letters because it's relatively easy task for me to do. I know how to write a recommendation letter. I've written many, many, many of them. <laughs> But it makes a big difference to my students. Course, yeah. You know, it they get into their dream colleges, they are they they get into the job that they want. So this is a pass the salt ask. Now, what we need to remember also is that the cost to us is very unique. Yeah. So we what might be easy for me to do may not be easy for someone else. So recommendations my letters might call, cause a great deal of anxiety to somebody else. Yeah. It's a pass the salt ask for me. I think that that's really important to remember to kind of, this is based on your own assessment, your own self-awareness. Now, probably the worst kind of asks are what I call bake your famous lasagna asks, where your ask, it's a, it's a careless ask. Someone's asked you to do something that's hugely effortful for you, like baking yeah. a lasagna, but the impact that it's going to have is not that great. So the story I tell in the book is really about that someone is hosting a potluck and everyone's invited to bring different dishes and that person says, well, you know, you make a really great lasagna. Why don't you bring that? And you feel stuck because you don't know how to respond to that. But your response should really be no, because <laughs> I'm not going to create value at a potluck with having spent my whole day baking it, knowing fully well that everyone else is going to be buying, you know, store-bought yeah, cookies exactly. and stuff like that. So it's learning to decipher and becoming really good at deciphering what kind of ask it is. And the reason we need to say no to things like the Bake Your Famous Lasagna asks is so that we can say yes to Hero's Journey asks. Hero's journey asks are the asks which might be hard to do. They're not necessarily easy, but they do leverage your strengths. They do showcase your talents. They do kind of highlight and underscore yeah. your personal brand and what you can bring to the table. And so hero's journey asks are worth doing because even though they are hard to do, they also confer a significant and meaningful benefit on the asker. And so those are important. Those are how we make a difference in the world. We need to say no to the things that don't matter, like the baking lasagna, so that we can say yes to going on these heroes' journeys. You know, and I love that point. The people I think who succeed really can figure out quite quickly 
okay, um, is this something that I should be doing or is it something I shouldn't be doing? Am I adding value? Am I not really adding value? It's this constant sort of negotiation about, um, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? Um, and really trying to be aware of um, what that, it's almost like the subtext. What is that person really trying to get me to do? And and maybe it could be that it's a small thing now that could lead to something else. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really having self-awareness of, you know, the bigger picture and the context. But yes, yeah, so it's really self-awareness and thinking about the bigger picture. So yeah, I, I love the, those points you make. And, and really, it, it's going back to that I've got a finite amount of resource. How do I manage this in the in the best way possible for myself and for that other person? And it is really our responsibility to do that. Nobody else can can take responsibility for the way we choose to spend our time. Right? We yeah. have to decide how we spend our time and make sure that to the extent that it's possible that we are creating a positive impact in whatever that we decide to invest our time in or our energy in. Sort of the the final thing from your book, because I know we're sort of running running out of time, you talk about people who are difficult askers as walnut trees. Um, And I I love that that, that term you've come up with. So how can we best deal with those people who literally will not take no for an answer? It's just like a massive negotiation. While doing this research, you really uh, realize that when you want to take the art competencies and put them in the real world, and you can learn how to say your empowered refusal, there are going to be people who are not going to take no for an answer. They will insist, they will push, they will haggle, they will negotiate, they will bargain. And those are the people who are the struggle to deal with, right? If you've got somebody in your life or a boss who just doesn't listen to what you say, even though you've said you're empowered, no, what do you do? And so I actually call these people walnut trees. Uh, And the reason for that is because, so use this metaphor, because in the literature, if you look at it, these people are usually called toxic or jerks, you know, all sorts of words which have lots of negative connotations. And as soon as you label some with a negative connotation, it becomes harder to deal with that person. So I've kind of taken that and made it a much more easy to deal with because I want people to be able to deal with a walnut tree, not shy away from the walnut tree. So the idea of the walnut tree is essentially that the walnut tree, the black American walnut tree, is this towering tree that dominates the landscape. It's got this luxuriant canopy and it has a root system that goes out 50 feet. What's interesting about that tree is that the root system exudes into the soil a chemical called euglone that is a herbicide. And, And what it does is essentially stunts the growth of everything else. So we do meet people who behave like walnut trees. It's all about them. It's about them flourishing. Yeah and stunting everybody else. But if you say no to me, I don't hear it because it's all about me, right? And most people can think about at least one walnut tree that they know who behaves like a walnut tree. And we can also figure out ways to deal with people who who behave like walnut trees. There's several strategies in the book. The first is recognizing the pattern of behavior, recognizing walnut tree behavior for what it is. The second is to identify what is the what is the way in which to de- best to deal with this particular version of walnut tree? And so walnut trees very often, you know, some walnut trees yell and scream and get angry. 
other walnut trees bargain and negotiate other walnut trees give you a silent treatment and exclude you you said no to me i'm not going to talk to you anymore so there are different strategies and people tend to be pretty consistent in the strategy they employ so think we need to think about who are what's the kind of walnut tree what sort of nature do they have and what is the best strategy that i can employ one of the common strategies and i'll give you broad ones because there are many in the book one is walnut trees very often will make a face to face request because we are significantly 44 times more likely to say yes to a face to face request so a walnut tree will make sure to ask you stuff face to face come to your office and ask you stuff so you want to make sure that you are ready with a response so that you convert that face to face response into something that is digitally mediated for example i will email you when i've had a chance to decide right is a good way yeah. to deal with that another strategy that walnut trees very often use is will to insist on an immediate response so that walnut tree is yeah. most likely going to say no 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 i need to know now and you have to be able to push back and say i'm sorry i really cannot commit right now i will have to take the time to reflect on this they will insist on an immediate response they also pull you know power tricks yeah, yeah. walnut trees are very good persuaders so they'll figure out how to make you feel like you owe them they might remind you of a previous obligation yeah. things that make you yeah. feel really guilty and so we need to, we really need to learn the patterns and develop our own abilities our own skills our own resistance mechanisms to be able to deal with these difficult people no i i just love that because i think life is about very much about pattern recognition and saying okay i've seen this in the past uh generally it's going to repeat itself again so uh, it's almost like these subtle cues you're picking them up and i think the quicker you can pick it up and the quicker you can realize these people the agenda or the way it's going down almost try and cut it out but i i like that point you're making about yeah just can i get back to you uh and then email them the refusal because yeah it's very difficult to say sorry but you could just say i need to check my calendar um i mean that's one thing i always do now i need to check my calendar i'll get back to you on that yeah I know that we're sort of running uh close to the time but um just a couple of things how can people get in touch with you I know that you're on LinkedIn obviously you've got your website uh, and all this stuff will be on the show notes but is there any other way that people can interact with you Vanessa So I'm on LinkedIn which I use most often I'm also on Instagram um my website has a contact information vanessapatrick.net mm. those are probably the best ways to get in touch Fantastic. And and one final thing, is there anybody in your uh, life or in your career you'd like to give a quick shout out to who's helped you? My parents for sure. They have been amazing. Uh, right through my entire life they've been completely awesome. I'd also like to give a shout out to my daughter who teaches me every day. uh and often tells me mom you wrote the book on saying no, you should be better at it. <laughs> She is so good. and she has learned a lot of stuff that i've been teaching but she actually practices it very very well so she's good at saying no to you then she's good at saying she's very good <laughs> at thinking about what she wants and saying no to the things that don't matter she's very good i i i admire yeah. her focus 
Oh, excellent. Very good. Well, um, Vanessa, it's been, um, such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, you know, loved our conversation. And, and the funny thing is, I, I was thinking about, uh, talking to you about, you know, Robert Cialdini because, you know, I love his work and influence and all those sort of things. And, you know, generally that's one person I always mention on my podcast. And I'm speaking to a professor of marketing who I'm sure, you know, is a big fan. But we, you know, we just never got round to that. But I'll mm-hmm. still give a quick shout out to you because I, I, I just love that book, um, Influence, and the whole way of, you know, just presenting things. Because I do think that if you can uh, present things according to a particular um, design, uh, you can you can influence people in a very um, dramatic way, yeah. but, but not not doing it in an underhanded or sneaky way. I mean, things like social proof and consistency, right. and you know, and and after we've done this podcast, I can say I've had Professor Vanessa Patrick on my podcast. Yes, <laughs> sorry, he, go ahead. It's really it's his work is really excellent, and it really talks. It really is insightful. Yeah. Because it draws on human behavior yeah. and how we tend to be. And one of the interesting things, if you read his book, Influence, one of the things that got him interested in influence is uh, is the fact that he found himself saying yes to a whole bunch of things. Yeah. And he was so curious as to how that happened. And so he, I think, uh, you know, my work is obviously the flip side of that, but it's the other side of yeah. the same coin. Fantastic. Brilliant. Anyway, Vanessa, thank, thanks so much. And hopefully Snoop Dogg will be contacting you in the future. <laughs> I look forward to it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was a delightful conversation. Thanks, Vanessa. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.